Amen. Well, it is great to be here with you guys. This is uh, easily my favorite hour of the week, and I needed this. And so thank you for those of you who have, uh, those of you who have joined us live, and thank you for those of, of you who are tuning in. Uh, last week, we began a new study, and we were calling it Jesus is Greater. And, and I recognize that that begs a question, and the question is, uh, greater than who? You know, greater than what? So here's my premise, okay? If you just take the statement and you play it out, Jesus is greater than, and then you put in a fill in the blank, uh, anything you put in the blank, the statement still works. So Jesus is greater than this person, and Jesus is greater than this feeling, and Jesus is greater than this experience, and Jesus is greater than what? This thing of great value. Tell you what, let's do it this way. Let's gather up everyone who has ever lived and everyone who will ever live. We'll put them in the blank, and let's gather up every wonderful thing that has ever been or ever will be, anything of value, and put that next to it in the blank. Still works. He's incomparable. He is of infinite value. He's infinitely great. And what I want you to see today is that if you have faith in him, he is with you even when you don't realize it, even when you don't feel like it, even when you don't see him or hear him or any of these other things. He is with you. And number two, he is working to make your life in the end, if not before, beautiful. He's moving you into a beautiful spot just for you and the beautiful picture that he's creating. And I think one of the stories that best exemplifies this in the whole of the scriptures is the story of Joseph that we're going to look at today. And Joseph, if you're not familiar with his story, is the 11th of 12 sons born to Jacob. Think about that. But he is the first son born to Jacob's favorite wife. And I know I just lost some of you, so let me just stop there and say I don't want you to be distracted by that, okay? Please, I think one of the mistakes that we make today is we take our 21st century culture and values and, you know, sensibilities and we march them back through all of history and then judge everyone by them as if they applied back then, as if they were the same back then. No, they were not. Now, there are evil, awful things that some of these people, these biblical characters, these heroes of the faith did that would be evil and awful, by the way, in every century of humanity. And yet you get to the New Testament and they're celebrated. I think the New Testament is more gracious to people than we tend to be. Please stay with me. Jacob was a tragically flawed man from whom we could learn much. But maybe not about family dynamics. So here's the way it worked out with him. Jacob had two wives, and the reason he had two wives is because he wanted to marry this wife, but on the night of his wedding, his father-in-law switched her for her sister. And so he ended up with the sister that he never loved. But he worked seven years to marry wife number two, and he had to work another seven years to actually get her because he got wife number one after the first seven, and he was none too happy about it then, and he didn't get too happy about it later. But the difference between these two wives, apart from the fact that he loved wife two, not wife one, he always wanted to marry wife two and not wife one, is that wife one is the one God blessed with all these children, including the one through whom the Christ would come. So who did God favor? But the deal is, he had son after son after son after son after son after son with wife one, and wife two was barren until she became pregnant. And then she had a baby, and his name was Joseph, who we're looking at. 
And then Jacob did something that violated all of the customs and the traditions and the conventions of his day. He said, look, I know that Reuben, son of wife one, is my firstborn son, actually. But this is the wife I always wanted. If I had had it planned out and it went the way that I wanted it originally, Joseph would be my firstborn son. And so instead of having Reuben be my primary heir and the sole ruler of our family, I'm going to take Joseph, even though he is significantly younger than all of these other guys, and I'm going to make him the primary heir and ruler over my family. Joseph's just a cute little kid, you know. He's like, hey, you know, I can... But these guys are hating him from day one. And then Jacob makes it worse. He goes out and he has this special coat made with all these different colors and it's bright and it's brilliant. And you can see it from miles away. Like, I mean, it's magnificent. And he clothes Joseph in this magnificent coat that in that culture and in that day, everybody understood, marked him, even though he's like, you know, here and his brothers are up here and they're much older as the primary heir and ruler of the family, which is a badge of humiliation for these guys. And every time they saw Joseph, then they hated him more. And then it got worse. Because these guys, who, by the way, became the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel, start out as pretty bad guys. I mean, they kind of repent in the end, and it sort of works out all the way. But right at this point in the story, these are not good people, and they do not good things. And Joseph sees them doing not good things, and he goes to dad and says, they're not doing good things. And dad comes to them and reprimands them. And so now Joseph is, you know, the, the goody two-shoes. Joseph is the tattletale. Joseph is the one who ratted him out. Joseph is the guy they really hate. And then it gets worse because God steps into the picture and he gives Joseph not one but two dreams from God. And they understood in that day that's one of the primary ways that God would speak to people. It was through dreams. The Bible hadn't been written yet. So now, not only has dad favored Joseph, God's favored Joseph. And in both dreams, and there's really one meaning, they both said the same thing. It was better to be Joseph than the brothers because Joseph is standing in the dreams and the brothers, try this on from their perspective, okay, are bowing at his feet. And he, of course, told them about the dreams, so... That didn't help him much. So at this point, they decide we're going to kill Joseph because then the dream will never come true. And we're sick of the kid anyway. So we're just going to do, we're just going to off him. We're going to get rid of him. And so they take their father's herds and flocks and all that stuff and they leave and they go far, far away. They go into a far country looking for grazing land. And they're gone for so long that Jacob, who held Joseph back, he didn't let him go because he knew better than maybe to trust him with all of his other brothers because, you know, I mean, the animosity, I'm sure, was very apparent. Finally, it's like the stress level over all of his other sons and most of his wealth being gone somewhere for so long rose higher than his concern level for Joseph. And he calls him in and says, look, you're going to have to go find your brothers. I've got a bad hip. I can't do it. So go find your brothers and tell them, come home. So he goes. And they see him coming. He's got his coat, you know. He's looking fancy. And they say, this is our chance. And they seize Joseph and they strip him of his coat. And there's a cistern, which is an underground water tank. And they just throw him in. It's empty. And then, and this is super nice of them, they sit around the mouth of this water tank while Joseph is crying out for his life. And they talk about how they're going to kill him. 
So, you know, Reuben, what do you think? I mean, you, you should have been the head of the family. How, how do you, you're good with a knife. How do you want to do it? Do you think we should just pin him to a tree and do target practice? We all got our daggers. You guys got your daggers. We're ready to go. You want to do that? Gad, what do you think? Well, you know, I mean, I think we could time to four animals, you know, have them run in different directions. I think that'd be kind of cool. Could do that. Asher, what do you think? I don't know. I think we should just pin him down in the field and then run the herd over the top of him. What, what about that? And lo and behold, as they're having this conversation about how to get rid of their brother, here come these spice traders that are heading down to Egypt. And Judah speaks up. He says, I got a better idea. Just sell him. We'll sell him. We'll sell him to these guys. We'll sell him as a slave. They'll take him down to Egypt. They'll sell him as a slave for more than they pay us. Everybody wins. We make money. We're rid of the kid. We're never going to see him again for crying out loud. He's going to die somewhere as a miserable slave in Egypt. Let's just send him down there, make a little cash of it, call it a day. They pull him up. They sell him for silver. They send him on his way. And they take his fancy coat and they kill a goat and they dip it in blood and then they bring it home with them and they come to their dad. They're like, hey, you know, uh, we were walking down the path and we came across this. It kind of looks familiar to us. (laughs) Is this your son's coat? And it is, of course. And so he assumes that Joseph has been devoured, destroyed, torn apart by wild beasts. That's the language. And he kind of has hasn't he? Joseph goes down with the slave traders down to Egypt. He's sold as a slave to a man named Potiphar, a very prominent Egyptian man. And then Moses, who's writing this story, stops right there. And he drops in this statement that is incredibly profound. It's like he's going, hey, listen, uh, you got to know something. And this is the place where you got to know it. Genesis 39, verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph. There it is. I'm going to tell you, I think that if I was writing this story, and I'm just going to say it, I think that if you were writing this story, we would not put that statement there. It doesn't seem to fit. You know, I mean, like if the Lord was with Joseph, his brothers, who are all a pain in the rear to everybody, would be the ones who were down in Egypt as slaves, and Joseph would be home with Jacob sitting on the front porch, you know, toasting their absence. I mean, like, finally, we're rid of these guys. That's the way it works, right? In other words, if God is with you, then things go well for you from your perspective. And that's the key. Because that's what Moses is driving his dagger into the heart of. It's this idea that our perspective can be trusted. He's like, no, 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 no. don't you understand? Your perspective is the problem. And one of the things, and I've shared this in the past, that we like to do when we go to North Carolina, particularly in the winter, is we go to the dollar store and then we take a dollar And then we buy a jigsaw puzzle, like one of these thousand-piece jigsaw puzzles, and then we bring it back to the house, and then we open it up, and then we pour it out onto an otherwise perfectly usable table that up until that point we had been able to use, but now we can't use again for another week. And so then we pour them all out, and then we flip all the little pieces up, you know, and then we take the box top and we put it up on the table so that we can see the picture that when all of these pieces are properly assembled, they come together perfectly to form. Okay. I think that our lives are a lot like one of those little pieces. Except here's the difference. The difference is we can't see all the other pieces. 
We can't spread them all out on a table and and compare and contrast. They're billions of pieces, billions of billions of pieces, pieces of, that are billions of pieces that are spread out over the whole of human history, past and future. How many can you see? Not many. Not a lot of comparing. Oh, and no box top. So make sense of your puzzle piece life then. Can't do it. You look at it and you're like, I don't know. I got a little green. What is that, grass? What is that like? Is that a leaf? What is that? I got blue. Is that like the sky? Is that somebody's eye? Is that a blue car? There's this little bit of yellow that's kind of like stabbing in from the side. Is that like a bird beak? Is that like the, the talon of the bird? Is it a flower? Like what in the world is it? And the reality is we don't care when, from our perspective, life is going well for us. You know, we put the piece in our pocket and we're like, whatever. You know, we don't even think about that because it's great or so it seems. But when it isn't great, we pull it out and demand answers of it that it is, if you just think about it, not capable of giving. I'm going to look inside the edges of my tiny little puzzle piece life, and then I'm going to tell you how it all works. Yeah, I don't think so. You know, if there is no God, then there is no box top. So that's something to think about, too. And we're just all pieces of a puzzle that actually isn't even a puzzle. There's no picture. But the Bible is coming to us with a God who is and with a Christ who is greater and more exalted, more valuable and more worthy than anything or anyone, in fact, than everything and everyone. And it's saying, A, he is with you. B, he is the author of the box top and the creator of every puzzle. And his puzzle is not complete without you. You ever do that? You get to the end of like a thousand piece puzzle and some evil person stole like one piece. You know what I mean? Like, and you get to the end and I mean, it takes you a week, right? And finally you get to the end and you're missing a piece. What do you do? Like, I'm like cutting a piece of cardboard and I'm coloring it with crayons. I mean, it's going to be perfect before we're done or as close as I can get it. You need every piece. And in every moment of every day of your life, in faith in Christ, he's moving you toward it. He's moving you toward it. And he's doing that with Joseph. Joseph is sold into slavery. And the scriptures say that the Lord was with Joseph. And what did Joseph do? Because here's what he didn't do. He didn't complain. Not that we know, not that we read about. I'm sure he had his moments. But what he did was he took his little puzzle piece life and he said, Lord, I, I can't make any sense of this, at least not looking inside the edges. Like, I mean, there's just, there's no way. It's not even reasonable to assume I can do that. So here's what I'm going to do. Even though this really hurts, listening to that stuff, devastating. Being sold, devastating. Being down in Egypt and now I'm a slave, devastating. And it seems like every single day moves me farther away from that word you gave me through those dreams in which I'm standing and these guys are bowing. It's devastating. But I'm going to put it into the hands of the God who is with me even when I can't see him. And I'm going to trust that somehow... It's going to be beautiful in the end. 
And so God prospers Joseph in the house of Potiphar, if you know that. And Potiphar takes everything in his care, all of Potiphar Incorporated, and that's a lot, and he puts it under the care of Joseph. There is nothing that he withholds from Joseph except for his own wife, who does not want, ironically, to be withheld from Joseph, but in fact, as it turns out, wants to be held by Joseph and pursues this 17-year-old boy day after day after day after day, and day after day he says, nope, uh uh-uh, nope, sorry, nope, can't do that, no, hey, you know what, let's talk later, you know what, I'll write it down, you can just read it when you have these thoughts, I'm not going to do this. And so she sets up a trap. She knows his schedule. She sends everybody out of the house. She knows when he's coming, and sure enough, there he is. He comes in the house. She makes her move on him. He rejects her and turns to run. She grabs his coat, and he just lets it peel off his back as he sprints out the door. And realizing that this kid is never going to be hers... In rage, she screams bloody murder. Everybody comes running into the house, eventually even her husband, and she accuses Joseph of trying to rape her and gives to her husband his coat as evidence. Every time this man's fortune changes, so do his clothes. It's remarkable. So Potiphar takes Joseph... And he throws him into Pharaoh's prison. It's a pit in the ground. The language makes that clear. It's an underground dungeon underneath the palace of Pharaoh himself. Like this is the maximum security prison in this entire part of the world. There's no getting out of this prison. And he's not there for like a couple of months or something. Like he's there for years upon years. And here's what he doesn't do. He doesn't say, well, praise Jesus. You know, I mean, this is exactly the kind of reward I would expect from God for being faithful to him when it looks like inside the edges of my little puzzle piece life anyway, from my perspective, which is so massively limited, that he's been unfaithful to me. I guess you've abandoned me. No. Moses is like, hey, you know what? This is getting rough on Joseph and anybody who's reading the story. So let's stop it again. And let me again say this. Genesis 39, now verse 21, he says, but the Lord was with Joseph. What did Joseph do? In tears, I'm sure. He took his little puzzle piece life and he said, okay, Lord, this doesn't make any sense to me at all. I keep getting farther and farther away from standing and them bowing. Like this does not make any sense. I can't see how you're ever going to do anything good with any of this or bring anything beautiful out of any of this, but you're God and I'm not. And so here's my little puzzle piece life. I'm going to trust that you're with me even though I cannot see it. And I'm going to trust that... But the day is coming when you're going to go, hey, Joseph, come over here for a second. This is going to be cool. You're going to love this. Watch this, because I've been saving this spot just for you. And I'm going to be blown away by how it all works, (laughs) by what it all suddenly means. Oh, so the yellow, that's exactly. And the blue, the green. Here again, the Lord prospers Joseph in prison, gives him favor with the prison warden. Everywhere the guy goes, he rises to the top, marvelously gifted. So the prison warden takes Joseph and he puts him in charge of the whole prison. Nobody 
nobody above Joseph except the warden himself. And then one day in come the two most curious inmates, the chief cupbearer of Pharaoh and the chief baker of Pharaoh. And one night, these guys each have dreams from God. And again, these people in that day recognize that as God spoke to me. So they get up the next day. They have no idea what their dreams mean. Joseph sees them and says, guys, what are you feeling so down about? Because apparently you could see it. And they explain, we both had dreams. We have no idea what it means, but we know that it's from God. And so, you know, we're just despairing of what the interpretation is. And Joseph says, well, here's the deal. God tells me what the dreams are, and then I tell you. Now, what does that mean? That means that notwithstanding all that's transpired in this young man's life, He still believes in his dreams. I mean, if all this time he finally just gave up and went, "Ah, I guess I just blew that. Maybe, you know, it was pizza or something. I have no idea why I had that dream. And obviously that was not of the Lord. And why would he be offering to help somebody else? He's hanging on against everything he can see, smell, hear, taste, and touch. It's flying in the face of what he perceives to be reality. But perception's the problem, right? So he says, tell me your dreams. And they tell him his dreams. And he's like, all right, so I'm going to be quick. We're just going to rip the Band-Aid off. Uh, Good news here, bad news here. So the good news goes to the cupbearer entirely. Pharaoh's going to forgive your transgression. In three days, he's going to put you back in your previous post, and you're going to be great. You, on the other hand, Pharaoh's going to cut your head off, and he's going to, you know, stick your body on a tree. All right, we're good. That's it. And that's exactly what happens. And the cupbearer leaves and forgets Joseph (laughs) for two more years. I, I mean, how long does it take to make a point? Longer than any of us want. But Pharaoh then has a dream. Actually, he has two, but they have one interpretation. And nobody, nobody can interpret his dreams. And all of a sudden, the cupbearer remembers Joseph. And he's like, hey, I got a guy. I met him in prison, right? So they bring him up out of the prison. This is desperation. They clean him up. He gets new clothes. They bring him before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh says, I understand. My friend, the cupbearer here, tells me that you interpret dreams. And Joseph says, I don't interpret dreams. Everybody looks at the cupbearer as if to say, well, you're going back to jail. You know, it's over for you. Remember the baker? Because this is going to be worse. And he's like, no, 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 let me just be clear. So God is the interpreter of the dreams. He gives them, and then he gives me their interpretation. I'm just the mouthpiece, so I want him to get the glory. Even though based upon what I can see inside the edges of my puzzle piece, Has he treated me well or not? I don't know. The piece hasn't made it into the puzzle yet, has it? So tell me your dream. So Pharaoh relates the dream, and Joseph says, all right, so here's what this means. It means that for the next seven years, these seven years are going to be the most agriculturally abundant years in the history of the nation of Egypt. Like we here in Egypt are going to produce and produce and produce and produce, and everybody's excited about that. And Joseph's like, hang on, hang on, don't get excited yet, because immediately on the back end of that, we're going to have seven years, nothing. Famine like you've never seen, not just here, but all over this region of the world. And so Pharaoh... He has the temerity to say, here's what you need to do. Because, you know, 
I've known you for 20 minutes, but I've done a good job running the prison, so I'm feeling, you know, like I should give you a little advice, I guess. You need to find a man in whom there is great wisdom, and then he needs to put into action the plan that I'm about to give you. And the plan is you need to maximize the agricultural productivity of the land during seven years and don't live like it's years of abundance. Put all of these strategic storage cities all over the place and store, 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 save, save, save. And then when you get to the seven years of famine, not only will you rescue your own nation, you'll rescue all the nations in this entire region of the world. And Pharaoh says, you know, I, I have only known you for about 20 minutes, but I'm a pretty quick judge of character, and, uh, and I, I do hear you did a good job in the prison, still don't know why you were there, but that's beside the fact. I'm going to give you that job. I'm going to make you the Lord of all Egypt. No one except me is above you, starting now, and all will bend the knee to you. You have the job, Joseph. Now go get at it. And he did. It's amazing. The Bible tells us that he went and he surveyed the land of Egypt. Well, history reveals to us that one of the things that he discovered is that there was a depression in the desert south of Cairo. So what Joseph did is he ran a canal off the Nile River 15 miles to that depression, and he made a garden in the middle of the sand. It's called the Fayum Oasis. I have personally been there. I've stood next to the River Yusef. That's what the sign says, River Joseph. The wisdom of this man is blessing Egyptian people right now. It's remarkable. They store and store and store. They save and save and save. Seven years of abundance come to an end, and now the seven years of famine are coming. And what does Joseph do? He just sits back, he puts his feet up, and he waits. You're like, well, for what? No, not a what. For who? You see, the famine extends to the land where his brothers and family live. He knows they're coming. He doesn't have to go to them. All he has to do is wait. And sure enough, they come. And he puts them through all of these gymnastics to discover the real heart of these people. Are they different from the bad guys they once were? And are they authentically repentant for the way that they had treated him? And all this while, they have no idea who he is. Why? They sent away a 17-year-old slave boy. Now they're dealing with a 40-year-old, fully grown, Egyptian-looking man, clean-shaven, Wearing the clothes, Lord of all Egypt, I mean, what are the odds? It's not him. Never even entered their mind. He recreates for them the same opportunity to do to Jacob's favorite wife's second son, who no doubt had taken over favored status with dad, that they did with him, and they don't do it. And that sets up the big reveal. These guys come, Joseph is standing, and they're bowing. Peace is in. And he sees it, and suddenly all of it makes sense. 
And it says in Genesis 45, beginning in verse 3, it says, And Joseph said to his brothers, in Hebrew this time, he's been speaking in Egyptian up until this moment, he says in Hebrew, I am Joseph, is my father alive? And then here comes one of the greatest understatements in history. But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Can you imagine that? I bet they just all fainted, like just, just... And Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I'm your brother, Joseph. Like, look at me. Look at me close, whom you sold into Egypt. How would I know that if it wasn't me? And do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Why? For God worked through your wickedness is the idea to send me before you to preserve life. And guys, as I look at my little puzzle piece life and I now finally see how it fits into the big picture, I recognize that it's all of the Lord, that it is all beautiful. The highs, the lows, he's redeemed even your wickedness. And he says, for the famine has been the land these two years and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. And because I, Joseph, can see that, I, Joseph, can forgive you. It's all good. It's remarkably liberating. You say, all right, well, you know, I still have two questions. So question number one, uh, the study is not called Joseph is greater, it's Jesus is greater. So where is he? And then question number two, you've said a lot. What do I walk away with? And I think the first part of the question is, is almost easy, honestly. I think that Jesus is just all over this story and he is entirely, indeed, he is infinitely greater than Joseph in every instance. Jesus, like Joseph, is the chosen son of his father, except who is his father? Because it ain't Jacob, guys. His father is no, none other than Almighty God himself. And Jesus is God the Son, the God-man, sent by his father to a foreign land, that is to say to this world, to find who? To find his spiritual family, to find you, to make it personal. He came looking for you. But when he came in the first century, how was he received by the Jewish people and particularly by the brothers of the Jewish religious establishment? Guys, they envied his obvious gifting and they hated him because he spoke against their evil deeds. They were bad guys. And he told them. Jesus, too, was sold for silver by a man whose name, incidentally, in the Hebrew is Judah. But in the Greek New Testament, it comes to us as Judas. Jesus, too, had a unique coat. In fact, when he was crucified, the soldiers gambled for his coat because it was all made of one weave. And they're like, we can't cut this in pieces. We don't want to tear this apart. This is like, this thing is too special. Who's going to be the lucky winner of the gambling deal for the coat of Jesus? You get the idea? You get to Revelation 19, verse 13, and you see Jesus pictured there wearing a coat dipped in blood. It's all there. Jesus, too, was bound and thrown into an empty pit from which he rose to offer bread to the world. Joseph is taken by his brothers. He's thrown in the pit. They sit around having lunch while he's crying out for his life. 
Jesus is taken by his brothers, killed, thrown in the pit, and by the power of God, raised from the dead, comes forth to offer a spiritual meal, the bread of his body and the wine of his blood, to anyone, even the people who would crucify him, to anyone who will have him by faith. Like Joseph, Jesus was accused of a crime that he didn't commit, unjustly thrown into a pit only to arise, not to the right hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, but to the right hand of Almighty God himself. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Christ. And we're told that a day is coming in which every knee will bow, which brings us to the payoff for us, to the what's in it for us, to the, okay, what am I supposed to walk away with? I think you're supposed to walk away that that Jesus, that Jesus is the grand puzzle maker. He's got the box top. And he's created every piece, including you to fit in it. And by the way, without you, it's incomplete. It won't be beautiful. And he's with you. One of his names is Emmanuel, God with us. Even when you don't know it, you don't see it, you don't feel it. That's not the measure of his faithfulness or of his presence. And he's ever and always, even in the pits, maybe especially there, moving you toward your spot in his puzzle. And the challenge, I think, for us is to stop trying to make sense of our little puzzle piece lives based only on what we can see inside the edges. It's not reasonable. And instead, like Joseph, it's to get up every day and go, Lord, you know, I mean, there are days where this thing doesn't make any sense to me at all. In fact, it kind of ticks me off to be honest. Looks to me like you've not been faithful to me, but, you know, I mean, all I can see is this. So, like, there's a lot out here that I don't know about. Looks like this is going nowhere, like nothing beautiful is ever coming from this. Like, that would just never even be possible. That's not even an option. But my mind is about yay big, and yours is infinite. So here's what I'm going to do again today. I'm going to give this to you. I'm going to entrust it to you, and I'm going to trust that you are with me. And you're working right now to make something beautiful out of what seems like just a, just a mess. But when it fits in your puzzle, when it makes its way into your picture, it'll be beautiful. So I close with this. What is your pit? We know the answer to that one, right? That's the easy one. The real question is, what are you doing with it? Are you allowing it to just fill your heart with rage or with anger or with resentment or with despair, with hopelessness or with whatever? You know what I mean? All of those things that we like to just go down and just give into. Oh, that's it. I'm just getting, you know. Are you using it as an excuse? Because, you know, God looks unfaithful to you. I mean, when you look at that, it's that big to be unfaithful to him. Because we do that too. Or are you taking it and entrusting it to him and saying, Lord, I'm going to trust you to bring something out of this that is so beautiful and so good that for forever I will worship you for that. And I'll look back and go, there are so many things that I would have changed and now I wouldn't change a thing. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that there is a puzzle 
and, uh, and that we just fit in it. <laughs> oh, Lord, we thank you that there are things going on outside the edges of each one of our lives that we can't see, that we don't know about, that we can't imagine even at times, but that we can entrust to you. And that make sense of our lives. Lord, give us faith by which to get up every day and to entrust our lives to you, to the one who has created us and the picture, and the one who one day will call us over and go, hey, come on, come on, let me show you something, and drop us in. Do this, we pray, for your glory and for the good and for the peace of your people and for the proclamation of real hope in our community. We pray this in Jesus' name.